Welcome back to episode 82. In this episode, I am with Gus Batazzi. I think I said that right. Gus, uh, I originally met him uh, the first time I did the Nirmaman seminar as Gus was kind enough to host, uh, not near a seminar, Nirmaman uh, instructor course where Gus was kind enough to hold it at his school at then in Connecticut. And Gus has over 30 years martial arts experience and holds multiple black belts. Now, before I get into that, I should remind everyone that this podcast is brought to you by Urban Tactics Krav Maga, turning lambs into lions since 2013. So if you like this content of this podcast or whatever else I decide to put out on the internet and you would like to support us, there are many ways you can do that. The free ones are, of course, like and uh, share our posts on Urban Tactics Krav Maga on Instagram. Like and share a post on Facebook at Urban Tactics Krav Maga. You can, of course, check us out on our blog. Like and share our posts at utkmblog.com. Sometimes it's me writing, sometimes it's not. It depends. Uh, utkmblog.com also has basic Krav Maga principles as I teach them and link to UTKMU, which is another area that you can support us, which is if you want to see... Uh, how I structured my curriculum and the way I teach a curriculum, you can pay to access or beginner and novice curriculum. And uh, as Gus pointed out at one point, Kramaga is not about creating anything new. It's about refining it, making more effective. So if the way I teach Kramaga helps your Kramaga journey, no matter what uh, organization you're with, then I'm more than happy to help you with that. So you can go to utkmu.com and sign up for beginner or novice uh, packages, uh, you know, no commitment. It's month to month, or if you want to pay for a year, you can do that. You can also go to utkmblog.com, hit the support us, and you can donate if you would like to. Uh, just do a one-time or monthly or yearly donation on the support us page. And uh, the more time I have for content, the less time I have to do other stuff, uh, which means better content. So the more support I have, the more I can do that. And of course. Uh, for my local listeners in Metro Vancouver, don't forget I do teach the firearms uh, safety courses f to get your firearms license, the PAL license. So you can sign up for that at UrbanTacticsKM.com, which is also where you can sign up for regular classes once we can all do that uh, unhindered. Uh, UrbanTacticsKM.com, again, is where you can sort of see our website for the local training. Uh, I believe that is it. Oh, the other thing is, shameless plug, if you want to, if you are bored, most certainly you're bored or drunk, uh, and you want something else to watch that isn't Kromaga or politically laced rantings from myself that often happen on this podcast, you can check out uh, my and my partner's new YouTube channel, uh, Joe and John Do Stuff. So creative, I know. Uh, it's basically us doing things from renovations, cooking, uh, to whatever. Uh, so like, and subscribe that, uh, cause I think that for me, at least self-defense is so much more than just physical. It's about learning how to survive life. And I think actually that is one of the reasons I went with the title urban tactics for our company was I wanted to give you the, as, as more and more of the population move towards urban uh, populations were losing skill sets and I wanted to give you the skills you need to survive in life. 
So that could be from physical self-defense, mental self-defense. That's the stuff I cover on the blog. And then there's just how do you do things from cooking to uh, uh, renovations, etc. We're just going to put it out there because I want to give you skill sets in an entertaining way that's a little different. You get to see my sense of humor, at least. Uh, so if you want to and you're bored or drunk, but yeah, either is fine. Go to our, uh, me and my partner's new YouTube channel, Joe and John Do Stuff. That would also be very good to support this podcast because, again, the more income I have coming in from all sorts of places, the more content I can provide for you, whether it be self-defense expertise, uh, uh, general mental health wellness tips, or whatever. Uh, look forward to all that. So those are all the ways that you can support us. Again, don't forget to follow, like, and subscribe to our social media, Urban Tactics, Kramaga or Urban Tactics KM, depending on the platform, the blog, utkmblog.com, and our local website, urbantacticskm.com, especially if you want regular classes. Okay, so Gus, his website, if you want to check him out, is corporatekramaga.com, and he is currently doing private lessons specifically and i'll read uh, at this time he's no longer doing his group classes at his school but let's read a little bit of gus according to his website so gus patazi is a 30-year veteran of martial arts holding multiple black belts in japanese karate and israeli Maga. he has the distinction of training with and promoted to full instructor and black belt by three direct students of imi so imi lichtenfeld is the founder of modern Maga. And Gus has been given a black belt by three different people who all train directly with Imi. And he's certified through four of the most respected Kramaga federations in the world. Kramaga Worldwide, IKMA, IKMAC, Kramaga Academy. Uh, and he's sought after, he's a sought after self-defense instructor and strategy speaker. Gus has given workshops and seminars internationally to audiences ranging from law enforcement to women's empowerment organizations. Over the last 15 years, Gus has designed and implemented a training program and methodology that has been taught to thousands of college-bound students. Gus's mission is to help reduce the number of victims of violent crimes every day to instill knowledge and self-defense in all students. He teaches and builds confidence necessary to stay vigilant and stay safe. So that is off of his website, corporatekramaga.com. And so... One of the things we talk about a lot is, you know, what does good Krav Maga look like? What does good self-defense look like? What should people be learning in their training? What does bad Krav Maga or self-defense look like? These are all topics that we discuss um, because I don't know what's going on on the Internet, but a lot of people are shitting on Krav Maga right now. I'm wondering, I had a thought, if it's to do with the fact that everyone hates Israel and all these martial arts are just taking their anti-Israel, anti-Semitic ideology and going after Krav Maga nowadays. Now, granted, we both agree, me and Gus, that there's a lot of garbage Krav Maga out there. Unfortunately, a lot of the schools that do really well are absolute crap because they don't understand what it is they're teaching. And the reality is if you're teaching Krav Maga properly, you're often teaching things that people need, not that they want, which is a challenge. We discussed that at one point, how people often don't want to talk about the realities of violence and how it's uncomfortable and that how if you talk to people or train in a way with people that that is the case and it doesn't have that happy-go-lucky got your sweat on um uh feeling you know it's people don't aren't drawn to it because real violence is shitty and training for real violence is sometimes shitty 
and you're not always going to feel great about yourself. But remember, the goal is to train your ability to deal with the reality of being surprised in a self-defense situation. It's, uh, I think, one of the criticisms of Krav Maga is it's, it's hard to train for real life under stress, um, which is true and not true. Is if I'm training for MMA, I'm training for MMA. We're training the most effective techniques that we can but we're not dealing with what happens if you're caught completely off guard mentally or physically. It doesn't always work the same. So that's a large part of what we're talking about, the differences in methodology, how to approach it, etc. So enjoy this podcast. It's episode 82 with Gus Batazzi. Krav Maga is not just a self-defense system. It is a way of life. Warriors Den is a podcast for Kravists fighters, martial artists, warriors, politicians, and general citizens. Consider this. The society that separates scholars from its warriors will have its thinking done by cowards and its fighting done by fools. Lucididi. Your host, Jonathan Fader, talks to guests in an open and uncensored format about their fights, their philosophies, and their lives. No topic is taboo, and the conversation may start in one place and end in another. As the quote suggests, you cannot separate the warrior from the politics and the world around them, as a true warrior must be a student in all forms of art and science. You're listening to The Warrior's Day. Warrior's Day. Brought to you by Urban Tactics Krav Maga. Turning lambs into lions. Welcome back. I am here with Gus Potazi, who's been doing martial arts Krav Maga for 30-something years now. How are you today? I'm doing great. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, too. I've already taught today, so now I'm here doing this and uh, continuing with that journey. So nice. h- how do you... Did you start with Krav Maga, or did you start with something else? Started with uh, Japanese karate, actually Kempo. Kempo. And uh, Yeah. Funny story, I had made it a uh, New Year's resolution that I was going to get into the martial arts and make my way all the way to black belt. Yeah. Uh, quite literally, on December 31st, I'm going to go do this. And about a week later, uh, I'm in a uh, restaurant downstairs of a two-story building, and there's all this banging going on upstairs. So I call the waiter over. I'm like, what, what is all that? Is that construction? He goes, no, that's a karate studio. Yeah. And I said, no kidding. And I he said, yeah. So I went upstairs and I met the instructor and I spent 14 years learning uh, Japanese karate, got the third degree black belt. Yeah. Now, is Kempo karate really Japanese or were you learning like the, because isn't it from Hawaii originally, I believe? Um, as it was introduced to me, and again, as will be no surprise, there's a lot of politics in martial yeah. arts. <laughs> so there's always some politics in martial arts. So what you find is uh, there's Japanese roots with Chinese undertones. And um, what I found out that this federation split from that federation and they yeah. were doing the true stuff. So um, I'll say that it was black belt. Up to black belt, it was Japanese. And then they started going into really Chinese Kung Fu. Mm. and uh that was sort of their their curriculum so yeah. I, I followed it that way but i couldn't tell you if it was specifically japanese I, I will say that i've met a lot of other guys in the japanese karate world and we've compared forms and the forms i was learning were their mm. forms too so yeah i assume there's similarities 
Yeah, I would imagine so. People always forget that we have two arms, two legs, and a head, and there's only so much creativity you can get with right. regards to martial arts until we, we evolve, right? So mm-hmm. you did Kempo uh, for, you said, 14 years. Yep. Uh, did you introduce other martial arts, or did you sort of get bored with that and then move in, into other stuff? I, I'm a cross trainer, just in my mindset. So I'll learn a set of skills, and I'm like, well, well, judo does some interesting stuff. So I, I played with judo for a couple of years and mm-hmm. then I wanted to improve my striking. So I did, uh, you know, Western boxing for a couple of years. And yeah. so it's, it's always been a journey. You know, every little art I would go into or, or investigate a little bit would just be to how do I improve this side of my game versus that side of my game. Even in the last three or four years, I've been cross training in Salat just because mm-hmm. I think the ways they approach uh, trapping and maneuvering the body are interesting. Yeah, yeah. So, where does Krav Maga come in? So, another fun story. Yeah. Um, so, I'm I'm a third degree black belt, and I'm I'm doing fine. I'm teaching for my instructor when he's away, and I'm living a very comfortable life, learning at a very you know slow pace at that point because there wasn't much more in curriculum for me to be pursuing under him. And my son, at this point, is 10 years old at a middle school, and they have a health fair at his school. And one of the tables at the health fair was a Krav Maga table, yeah. uh, of all things. And my son <laughs> wanted to go because he wanted to hang with his buds. I'm like, well, you know, let me go see what's around here. And there's Krav Maga. And this guy says, hey, why don't you come in and you know, try, try what I do? And I'd heard of it. And I said, well, sure, let me see. So <clears throat> I bow into a class the following week. And uh, again, not to sound immodest or anything, but I, I was a good third degree black belt. I, mm-hmm. I knew my stuff. And they paired me off with a guy that had six months of Krav Maga experience. Yeah. And this guy handled me. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm like, whoa, 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 what is going on here? How, how does this happen? So yeah. I started getting more into this understanding of what is, what is Krav doing? What's, what's karate doing? And uh, being the type A guy that I am, I, I just, jump full yeah. full body into the ocean mm-hmm. that's good that's the way it is usually people you know they love it they just d- dive in one way or the other um yep now you're on the east coast right i am uh because you're connecticut or new york are you specific to one because i see you you're in both sometimes uh i have i have studios in two locations i have one in connecticut and one in actually westchester new york so yeah. i train in both facilities so how long have you been teaching Krav Maga then since that experience? I have been teaching Krav Maga probably since 2008. 2008. That's about when I started, I think. So yeah. similar, similar time frames. You have obviously a, lo- a longer experience with martial arts. Um, I always found it like East Coast is interesting. Like I'm West Coast, Canada. And uh, I found that there is a very distinct martial arts culture on the east coast like martial arts symposiums and 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 that's that was a very very foreign concept to me where you know all the masters of different styles get together uh well so what's your perspective on like the mar- martial arts not not just krav maga but martial arts culture on the east coast like what's been your sort of experience there it's very cluttered so uh you'll see a lot of um symposiums is probably a good way of saying yeah it. courses weekend courses, workshops, seminars, and everyone kind of gets together to kind of, you know, figure out the best technique for this particular situation or problem or, and, and, and they'll, 
you know, they'll talk back and forth about it. So it's, it's, it's pretty cool. But uh, like I said earlier, it's political. So yeah, lots of politics. <laughs> you tend to find that people will kind of hang together who are part of the same system and they kind of trash talk the other systems a little bit when they're together. So that's, yeah, I mean, that's, that's human. human way. Yeah. So, um, uh, so I was, was up early. My train of thought's already gone. Um, <laughs> what, uh, were you with a specific organization of Kramaga and are you still with them or are you kind of solo like a lot of, uh, people do these days? So my journey has started with Kramaga worldwide, mm-hmm. which is out of Los Angeles. And that's where mm-hmm. I, I got my first three to four years of training. Uh, while I was at a worldwide place, there was a seminar given that I attended by, uh, David Kahn and. Uh, mm-hmm. Alan Feldman at the time, yeah. and they represent IKMA, yeah. which was, as we both know, the the, origi- the original federation under EMI. Yeah. So I sat through that four-hour seminar, and I was blown away by what they were doing. And yeah. again, I hate to say better or worse, let's just say different. But I walked out of that seminar, and I followed Alan Feldman to the parking lot, and I was, went to him, and I said, I want to train with you. Yeah. Um, where do you train? And he told me. And um, for the next five years, I pursued IKMA exclusively. So I went between Allen and David Kahn. Yeah. And ultimately Rick Blitzstein, another mm-hmm. IKMA individual. So I spent a lot of time under those three guys. So yeah. I would say if you saw the bulk of my work comes from that. And then uh, I found out about this super cool guy called Nir Maimon. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and what, what he was doing with himself with, you know, CT 707, I thought, well, I want to learn that. Yeah. So to answer your question, I'm not with any one federation. So what I've done is I've sort of taken on my own flavor of Krav Maga, not that I've invented anything, but my teaching methodology has become sort of a, a combination of all of it. Yeah. And you know what? I'm in the same boat because, uh, I started with, uh, IKMF and then as you start branching out and you start learning like, oh, like I like this better and I like that better. And, I, you know, I think that is in the spirit of, of what Emmy wanted. I had never met the guy, unfortunately, is that, you know, you go from the first principles and what works over here doesn't work over he- there and what's the best concept. And I think actually the near seminar we did at your place in Connecticut, I think that was the first time I trained with him as well. And, mm-hmm. you know, he, he actually, whether he calls it that or not, he, t- he teaches from a very uh, first principles perspective, right? Because uh, let's say some of the other organizations, if I go look at their curriculum list, they have like a thousand techniques. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah I, I don't have time to teach to a reasonable proficiency, the average person, right? So that really changed my mind as well as like, what benefit do I get from being with one of these big organizations if... I don't need to teach all that stuff. And I think, you know, you're finding this across North America where uh, a lot of people are actually distancing themselves from the big organizations. And I don't know about you, but I have started to notice a trend right now on the Internet. It's time for everyone to bash Krav Maga. I'm seeing a lot of it right now for whatever reason. Now, I think you're in an interesting perspective because you did all the traditional martial arts and then... Uh, you had an eye-opening experience with Krav Maga, mm-hmm. right? So maybe you have a perspective about why people are saying what they're saying and why Krav Maga works or does not work because you have everything in there. It's an interesting time, right? I, I think 
so here, here's how I come at it. When I teach, I teach from the standpoint of what this, what are the best self-defense principles for this moment, right? So let's talk about self-defense. Let's forget about system work. Let's forget about Krav or Karate or Salat or any other system and say, what's the whole definition of self-defense, right? And the definition of self-defense is to get yourself out of a dangerous situation as quickly as possible with as little damage to you. That's that's self-defense. So what you want to start talking about is what's the quickest way out of a situation. Now, when I'm looking at all these YouTube videos and all these Instagram podcasts or whatnot, I mean, again, there's some brand names out there that are not saying some nice stuff about what Krav guy is. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's, they're taking isolated techniques and they're deconstructing a technique saying this technique doesn't show smart ideas. And I think, you know, you need to start looking at the conversation as far as not every, um, not every technique is meant to be analyzed, but as you said before, it's the principles. What are we trying to do and how do we best get ourselves out of the situation um, with minimum damage to us and as quickly as possible? So I think that Krav Maga, if it's viewed from that filter, does very well. But if we're going to sit there and talk about, okay, we're going to look at 16 different answers for a gun or a knife or whatever, everyone is going to have their own reason as to why theirs is best and the the real answer comes, sadly, is how non-compliant is the moment. A lot of the times that people are are trying to make theirs sound better, um, I look at the videos and the attacker doesn't really do much other than stand there and take a beating. Yeah. Uh, the Krav Maga way of training, as I've had it, as I'm sure you've had it, you're fighting, right? There's a lot more uh, resistance. There's a lot more non-compliance. Uh, I've been bruised and punched and bloodied, you know, in part of my practice, because if it doesn't work under some of those conditions, then it probably doesn't work. Yeah, no, it makes sense. Like, I, I think Kramaga needs to be focused less on the techniques, although we, we will agree that some techniques work better than others and more on like the approach to the teaching methodology. Because if you look at like, mm-hmm. uh, like uh, Army Kramaga in Israel is technically from a technical perspective actually isn't very good. They focus mm-hmm. on the aggression and the fight and the go and the go and the go and don't give up based on like the prey, mm-hmm. uh, you know, predator prey mentality is you either fight or flight, which is our ingrained, ingrained thing. And I think a lot of people have forgotten that and they get so focused on the technique specific. They don't even understand why, why you're doing it. Right. So let's right. take um, the 360. Right. I know some organizations mm-hmm. don't teach it anymore and some organizations do. I still do. And I look at it. I think a lot of people are just teaching it wrong because they don't actually understand it um, right right off of the flinch response. Whereas yep. if I'm panicking, I shoot my arms out. Well, if you're trained and you're paying attention, you should back away because you're like, no, I, I'm ready for this. But, but, but I think the, the, the point you made about it's self-defense is a lot of people forget they're not expecting it when it happens and their nervous system is caught off guard and then your flinch response goes and we're just kind of like working with it. And then I need to add the aggression to overwhelm their nervous system. But if I just teach it as a technique, 360 is kind of shitty. But if I teach it as the whole thing, it makes sense. Yeah. What do you think about that? I totally agree with you. And and it's funny you should talk about the the mindset because there was an attack in Paris a few years ago. I don't remember how long ago, but I used it as a... uh, teaching point for my classes for probably a week 
And there was a bunch of people at a Parisian cafe at night having whatever coffee and dessert or, you know, late night dinners. And a bunch of guys broke into the place with machetes and started yeah. attacking people. Like, do you remember that attack? It was, that was, a, I mean, there's been so many in the last few years. I don't yeah. remember that specific one, but it was, it was a bizarre moment. And, and I, I used that moment a lot as an example, because if you imagine yourself sitting with, whether it's your wife or your girlfriend or your family or whomever, and you're just sitting down having, you know, having your cafe au lait and your, and your pastry for dessert, and you're probably had a couple of nice glasses of wine and you're feeling relaxed. The yeah. last thing you're ready for is a, a, a machete attack or yeah. any attack because you're not there. Your mindset isn't there. And to go from zero to 100, it's a lot to ask. So my, my methodology when I teach is I remind people, I said, I don't want you to remember at that point a specific technique. That's almost impossible. But yeah. what I do want you to think about is these are your movement patterns. These are your overall macro objectives, right? And that's something you might be able to pull off. Yeah, that's 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 what you want to get to, because you're correct. You know, if, if I'm not thinking about it, I'll pull out a flinch. I mean, that's the yeah. whole spear system, right? Spear system yeah. is all about the outside 90. Yeah. And, and I get that. And I think that's that's a fine concept. But, you know, 360 by itself works as a model, but not as a technique. Yeah. So it's like the holistic, the technique plus the mindset plus the ability to apply. It's like what I teach is. I've started actually connecting it to mental health a lot lately because that's, you know, big in the conversation. And I'm just trying to make people realize uh, your nervous system, whether you're in combat or a mental health crisis, is actually doing the same thing. And if I can start to right. make people realize to take control over how they're feeling in a moment of stress, it'll apply to both a physical self-defense or, you know, my boss is yelling at me again. And, and it's right, kind of right. like taking control uh, uh, of yourself. Because I think people really under or overestimate their ability to perform when they get that adrenaline dump and things start going sideways. And they're in a situation where I was not expecting that guy to pull a knife at all, right? So, uh, funny story. Uh, just two weeks ago, I took on a new client. Mm. And this client was un unknowingly to him in a knife fight. And I say that exactly as I meant it. Um, he was in a fight because his friend, who's an MMA cage fighter uh, pro, put in one of the minor promotions mm. with a winning record. I think he's like seven and one. That's pretty good, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's fine, man. That's good. Yeah. Um, so he gets into some kind of, you know, verbal jawing with some guy at a bar and they get pushing and they get shoving and the MMA guy figure he's got this guy licked. So I think he throws one or two shots at him and the guy who he's handling suddenly pulls a knife out from his pocket because he didn't start with the knife in his hand. Yeah. And he smashes this MMA guy across his eyes, chest um, and stomach. Oh, yeah. And the MMA guy ends up on the floor kind of in a bloody mess. He lives, but he's all he's all messed up. Yeah. And my new client found himself suddenly trying to help his friend out. Not again, not understanding that there was a knife in this guy's hand because it was a, a small profile weapon. And yeah. He gets slashed across the uh, side of the neck. Doesn't die, obviously, but you know the the expectation sets that people have for violence, I think, are completely rooted in Hollywood. Everyone yeah. sees all of these sequences that sound and look good, and there's every bit of awareness of all things at all times. And um, I always tell people that violence is chaos. That's yeah. all violence is, and all self-defense is is trying to 
find a few moments of structure during a chaotic moment. That's a really good way of putting it. I think that the finding a few moments of structure, otherwise you get overwhelmed and, and panic, you know, and perspective is everything. Unfortunately, Hollywood does its thing. And, uh, as some places get safer and safer, like the suburbs in some places, people are detached from violence and then they only think what they see on TV is the reality. Now, I had an interesting uh, thing. It's not, not a shocker to me at all. I was, I'm teaching at a, a sort of an interesting university sort of situation where it's uh, foreign exchange students doing like semester abroad. Uh, hilariously, I had a kid from Syria, like Iran, uh, you know, countries that traditionally don't like Israel. So I'm like, okay, <laughs> this will be interesting. It, it turned out fine. And then I had, you know, the, the teacher, super nice guy, a very Canadian. And, uh, you know, I am talking about the Canadian laws of like, hey, you need to understand the laws and you can't just beat the crap out of people outright here. It has to be reasonable. But I was saying to someone about like, what do you do in a violent situation? And, and one of the kid from Syria responded with, you get your friends and you show force or something along those lines. And I'm like, you know what? You're absolutely correct in your culture. If I say that in Canada, though, people are like, what are you talking about? You're just ego driven. But yeah, people yeah. forget the culture is if I don't do that in some places, they will then beat me up because it's the perceptional right. of violence, which changes from where you are um and 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 what's going on so if you live in vancouver where i am it's very relatively safe though there's a mild gang war here right now but i'm not at all concerned and then you have new york right what's going on mm -hmm. in new york right now right sure. which which i would sure. certainly love to talk about uh, yeah the violence is getting a little crazy there it seems like at least from what i'm seeing i don't know you're there you, you can tell me more um yeah i mean there's certainly events there are, there are pockets of violence everywhere there, but you know, I will tell you, my daughter lives in New York. My parents live in New York, and yeah. they don't they don't see any of it. So yeah. I think it's, it depends on where you are. But to your point earlier about laws, you know, it's uh, it's not a small detail how you affect or what you decide to do. Yeah. Um, no understanding what the laws allow for, because mm -hmm. in New York, actually in the entire tri-state, Connecticut, New York, New Jersey, you know, the requirement is preclusion. Right. So basically preclusion says I'm not allowed to be fighting if I can leave. If I can leave, I got to go. That's yeah. the requirement. Yeah. So if I decide that I'm going to fight the person when I had opportunity to leave, it's no longer deemed self-defense. And I have to now you know, deal with the criminal possibilities of what I do. Yeah. And yeah. that's uh, versus, let's say, Florida or Texas or the southern <laughs> states where it's stand your ground. Which basically yeah. says, as soon as I have a, a problem in front of me, I have every right to, to deal with them as I need to. Yeah. And you know what most not everyone understands is in the United States, 38 of the 50 are are uh, stand your ground. Yeah. But the 12. And increasingly, not. increasingly, as I think pushback to the radical left is uh, uh, no permit states for carries now. You're starting to see that pop up, which is right. interesting. Now you being in New York, the carrying a firearm for self-defense is a big no-no. Uh, but what are your thoughts? Yeah, what are your thoughts on that? Like as an American, because I hear all sorts of perspectives on on that one. I don't have a problem with the Second Amendment at all. I think the idea of carrying a weapon and having a right to a weapon is fine. But uh, I, I think there needs to be some um, common sense to how some of those things get played out. So uh, I, I don't think there's enough mental health checks done on people. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of situations where people who should have no rights to having a gun could still get a gun. 
Yeah. And I, I completely understand these are these are certain things, but from a legislative standpoint, you can't just legislate guns. It's too hard. How do you screen? Yeah. What do you screen for? So it's a nightmare. Uh, but I, I have no issue with the Second Amendment. I think people. I, I live, uh, I live in a very red section of Connecticut. Yeah. Everybody here carries. Everybody. Yeah. There's guns everywhere, and I have no issue with that. But you know, no one's uh, not much gun violence around here. That's what yeah. I'll tell you. So you can carry in Connecticut. You can't carry in New York, though, right? Correct. Yeah. It's always interesting, like in America, where one state you can and one state you can't, and then there's all the confusion uh, with the argument mm -hmm. of the po political aspect. So I, I find myself, you know, always explaining like Canadian gun laws because on one aspect they're really good because they really do address the mental health aspect, but right. then on the other side, it's uses as a political tool. If you're following Canadian politics right now, they're trying to buy votes, and there's a gang, a, quite a bad gang situation in Toronto going on. And they're all saying, we need to ban guns. But the problem is the guns they're using are coming illegally across the border, which means our border control isn't doing something. So they're trying to hawk it off on the gun, sit, gun thing. So that's like the debate. Is it like, no, we're not going to take your guns. It's like uh, in the States, you have Democrats outright saying we're taking your guns. So, so there's a problem. So the knee-jerk reaction is to say, no, we're not, we're not going to take that stance. Like you cannot touch it. But then you right. see all the mental health aspects. Right. So in Canada, we have effectively red flag laws, essentially, whereas if you think someone who has legal guns is a problem, you can report it and they'll investigate it. And if they find that it's a problem, they'll take it away yeah. uh, until such a time where it's not an issue. So I know someone personally who had a psychotic break and they're normally very safe with guns and they almost shot their mother. There was a lot going on in the situation. Wow. The, the police came in and took the guns away, arrested it. He saw a mental health professional. They said, hey, you had a psychotic break. And mm -hmm. the court then said, you have a two-year prohibition, right? Yeah. So they want to give him time to calm down and establish that it was, in fact, a two-year psychotic break. And mm -hmm. then now he, he was told, you got to go do your gun license again because we have licensing here. And they got it. He passed all the stuff. And, you know, he had to fight a little bit because they're like, are you sure? Like, are you sure you're fine? And he got it back. And it's, it's a bit more of a like a rational approach behind the scenes, because if you talk to the politicians, they're saying different things. But the actual application is like can, they assess like, does this is this person a threat to themselves or others? And if so, we're not going to let them have guns. And if not. Uh, then it's fine. The problem in America is it's so polarized that people don't want to have that conversation about it, right? Because as you, you yeah, know, well, we live it right now in a powder keg political world, <laughs> right? If yeah. you even breathe something that seems a bit one way or the other, and the other person in front of you is not that way, it, it can just end the conversation abruptly. So it's 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 a tough conversation, and obviously gun laws are are certainly in heated debates. There's been so much mass mass shootings around here yeah. uh, since January. I don't even remember how many incidents there have been, but there have been over a hundred mass shootings in New York um, or in in America. No, in the U.S. U.S. plurally, yes, right. U.S. Yeah. plurally. So there's been over a hundred mass shootings, you know, in the five months. Hmm. So that's that's certainly untenable, right? We we that, there's got to be something done about that. But the question becomes, on, you know, how do you uh, how do you attack that and yeah. you know and on what basis do you attack that yeah. because again mental health is certainly the whole point if someone is uh of mental soundness 
they won't think to use their gun in this kind of manner. There's certainly something wrong with that person that they decide yeah. they're going to walk into an establishment and start shooting people at random. Yeah. But access to the weapon is only one possible answer, but there's other aspects that they can be focusing on. And I don't think any political party, either one, has a, has a good answer for that. Yeah, well, because the answer is actually nothing to do with the guns, and that's why they don't want right. to deal with it. It has to do with other things, such as right. education. Uh, you know, more educated a populace is, the generally, as a general rule, the less violent they tend to be. So there's that, you know, and you have unfortunate situation of uh, ghettoization in America due to, you know, in air quotes, good ideas that were executed poorly, and then they, right. nobody bothers to fix anything. And, and it's just an easier, I think, scapegoat. It's the same with, uh, you know, like violence itself. Like, well, that person shouldn't have attacked you. Yeah, but he's attacking you right now. What are you going to do about right. it? <laughs> right. You know? Exactly right. Mm -hmm. So, uh, in, in, what, what kind, because I'm always interested, like, who trains Kramaga? So, like, in New York, Connecticut, like, are you getting people from all walks of life? Or are you getting specific sort of groups of people coming in the door? It's, well, prior to this year, let's sort of, divide the world into maybe uh, pre-COVID and post-COVID. Mm, yeah. Pre-COVID, it was all walks of life. Yeah. Uh, basically, people who are, I, I, only, I only teach adults. I don't have a kid's program. I run yeah. purely with an adult crowd. Um, and I've been getting new, you know, people who are either new parents or you know, executives who travel a lot or uh, see, you know, part of the C-suite, people who are just you know, in, that, in that world. So I was getting some high net worth people who had you know, concerns about keeping themselves and their family safe when they travel. Yeah. Post-COVID, I've started to find pockets of people who have been exposed to threats. Mm. So the Asian community has started to show up to me a little bit more. The Jewish community has started to show up a little bit more because anti-Semitism is up. Certainly the anti-Asian world has become far um, greater in, in the last, call it 12 to 18 months. So I'm starting to find people coming in because they're just afraid to be walking around because of the harassment that they're seeing. Yeah. Fear is a powerful motivator, right? <laughs> Oh, it is. It is. And, and now you're really dealing with the irrational, right? Because if these are all racially based concerns, there is yeah. no talking your way down, right? You are yeah. you are the enemy because you are the enemy. And I don't know you, but because you are the persuasion of the religion that you are, you are the enemy. So yeah. uh, at that point, the only only language that you have is violence. Sadly, that's all they've got left. That's why, you know, I was, in the last podcast I did, he brought up a quote that I love. It's, it's better to be a warrior in a garden than a gardener in a war and i find yeah. like i found that here in particular with the jewish community in canada is they don't want to learn because they feel relatively safe and it's like guys do you forget your own history and and you know we i, I had students they always joke oh we need something serious like violent to happen to get more people in the door uh which is not what you want because it's no. so hard to get people to prepare for bad situations if it's nowhere in their sort of like ethereal peripheral life you know you're right yeah have you found an effective methodology to convince people to train even if they don't need it yet or are you still struggling like the rest of us <laughs> I'm, I'm struggling man i i tell people all the time the number one problem i have i think the number one problem we as a uh as a group of people trying to teach have right an industry is we got to make people talk about something they're uncomfortable about talking about, which is violence, yeah. right? Yeah. Anytime you bring up violence, and I find especially this is true when you're dealing with women. Uh, yeah. The fact that I have, I've tried to carve out women in self-defense classes and 
you know, rape prevention classes and all these things. And they're very poorly attended. And they, yeah. I have found that. And when I've talked to these communities of women and I ask them what their interests are, what you realize is they'll say things which are abjectly false, which is, well, I live in fill in the blank, Greenwich, Armonk, Fairfield, Westport. I don't need to know about that. Mm, yeah. And that's just denial. They don't want to acknowledge that it could potentially happen to them. So there's a real hardship in trying to have a dialogue with somebody about something you don't, they don't want to talk about. Yeah. So, you know, anytime there's a, a shooting or a violent action or, or a, uh, an event that makes the news, my phone rings and, yeah. you know, I don't want that to be the case, like you said, but that seems to be the only time it hits people's radar. Yeah, it's uh, out of sight, out of mind. It's like some of those like just deep rooted psychological behaviors of humanity that get us into these problems because everyone's not learning. It's like, oh, it doesn't affect me and th until it does. Like right. there's that famous, uh, uh, I don't know, bishop or priest from World War Two. You know, they didn't come for me at first and then it goes down the line of lists uh -huh. and all of a yeah, sudden, yeah. oh, now they're at my door and I'm screwed. Right. And it's yeah, like yeah. A, le a lesson that people refuse to learn. They just they don't want to. Right. And I don't, I don't know <laughs> what to do about that at this point where it's like you can see it coming. And right. it's like, no, it's never going to happen. OK. <laughs> right. And, and, you know, it's Tim Larkin's book. Right. When violence is the answer, he has, you know, he has that famous quote, which I've used several times. Right. Violence is hardly the best option. But when it is, it's the only option. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's you're, you're left with that when you're standing with the uh, wolf at your door. You have no choice. There's no talking your way out of it. And yeah. There's a. A fair amount of that conversation I'll have with people as far as, you know, what you're doing and how you're trying to get by. And there are those who are receptive to it. And then there are those who are just, as we just talked about, right, they, they just assume not not talk about it. Or they'll say, well, I'll carry a gun. Well, I'll carry a knife. Well, I'll carry whatever without really understanding that the act of drawing yeah. and shooting, the act of drawing and stabbing, if they, carry, if they decide to use a knife, they don't know what that means yeah they've, sh they've shot they've shot at they've shot at targets they've never shot at people yeah and there is a reality again in my humble opinion there's a reality that the person who's here to come for you has already made peace with the fact that they're going to kill you yeah. have you made peace with the fact that you're going to kill them yeah and, and that hesitation will cost you your life yeah and i think i think in the cities now we're so like even the violent cities in north america and even in Western worlds are nothing compared to the violence in other places. And there's like a scale. Now, like right. I started hunting uh, in the last few years. Yeah, I didn't grow up with it. Um, my parents were not gun culture people. I'm the one who got into it. And I started hunting and I haven't been doing it long enough that I don't have that like hesitation before mm -hmm. the shot. So, you know, that's a, maybe a way to maybe help people understand is I'm shooting something I intend to eat. And even doing that without the experience or propensity for violence like that, it's, it's, it's like, uh, should I do it? Should I not do it? Now imagine putting that into life or death where you gotta, you gotta do it now. You know, here in Canada, you, you cannot carry a knife for self-defense purposes. And a lot of I people think you can. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then it's like, okay, and I'll tell police the same thing about their gun. It's like, if that, if, if that thing is coming out, are you actually going to use it? Because if you're not, you shouldn't be pulling it out. Now, let's forget the fact you legally can't do that in Canada. Because you can go to jail simply for carrying it for that purposes under the right circumstances. 
Uh, if you piss them off, they'll charge you for sure. If you're like, uh, whatever, they'll take it for you and tell you to go away. Um, but like, that's the reality. Carrying these tools is nothing. If one, you're not willing to use it and two, you don't have the ability to use it under stress, right? I don't want to carry stuff unless I'm going to, I have the authority to use it. Like in Canada, that's one of the reasons why I wouldn't carry uh, a gun is because if I use it for that purpose, I'm going to go to jail. So right there's not even though i think guns are necessary means of self-defense in where i am it's like it's not worth it i'd rather just run like you said in new york or or use if i have to hand to hand combat but if i'm in some other kind like if i would if me as a a white person is in south africa right now i would be carrying a gun for sure right it just depends you know where you are it's that perspective i think yeah, and the cultural differences are important, and most people don't even take the time to even consider that because we're very we're very parochial, right? Yeah. We'll all know our respective neighborhoods, you know, maybe our townships or possibly our states, uh, but we don't go beyond that. So yeah. people have a real high ignorance to what it's like to cross state borders or certainly country borders and know what it's like somewhere else. They, they don't do that. It's yeah. again, it's a, it's you and I have dedicated a good portion of our lives to learn this, yeah. and uh, it's. It's a very different point of view that we have than, than the standard John and Jane Q public, right? When yeah. when we talk about a jury of our peers, at least in the new, in, you know, in the United States, they're not a jury of my peers. Yeah, and I, I don't mean that disrespectfully. I just come at things with a far different set of ideas and understandings and appreciations than the standard person sitting in a jury box does. Yeah, you know that's actually I, I I've been thinking about that is like if I. If I killed someone in self-defense, well, I want the jury to be use of force experts because they can judge reasonably, did I use excessive right. force or not? And now, right. the, the, you know, I, as good as our, our judicial system has been to get us out of, you know, where we were, you know, habeas corpus and all that stuff. It's like these people who don't understand violence are judging me about me using violence, but they don't understand mm-hmm. it. And it seems like a very, like, I don't know. I, I don't know what your thoughts on are on the uh, the George Floyd case, but to me, that was not justice because that was a mob mob decision. And well, I think everyone can agree that he should never ever be a cop again. I've talked to a lot of people who just cannot consider that murder uh, as a use of force. It's they they don't consider it murder. They'll consider it not appropriate, and there should be repercussions. But the the mob. On, on on the media is that's that's you know that was murder and then you find out some of the jurors in the trial they came in with the intent of conviction which is not how right. the system is supposed to work correct so, so what do, what do you what are your thoughts on on that whole you know the that specific pierce uh concept also the what's going on with policing in uh in the u.s right now so i, I think it's easy to kind of categorize police as racist uh, I think that's just become a habit this country has gotten into, and I don't believe it's true. I don't, I don't believe that they are any more racist as an organization as far as um, as a percentage, as you would see a percentage of racism across the country. They are a sampling of us. So are there some that are racist? Yes. Are there some that are, are, are there a lot that are not? Yes. And I think that goes across the country. What I think a, a lot of the the brand name cases of people who have been killed by police officers is a sad example of is terrible training by police officers on how to you know handle 
on a hand-to-hand basis. They don't know how to do that. Yeah. Uh, I have trained several law for you know law enforcement across the U.S. and I've realized that when it comes to just taking taking a suspect down with their hands and bringing them to cuffs, uh, they are woefully inept at doing that. So yeah. what Chauvin did in my mind was he applied a, a a technique, if you want to call it that, totally inappropriately, and he just mm-hmm. continued to, to hold it down for reasons that should never have it should never have lasted nine minutes. Yeah. So there's at no that part everyone agrees. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, right. But but the technique, what he chose to do, I actually teach for law enforcement a position across the neck, but yeah. that not that portion of the neck. And actually, yeah. what I teach is a, is across the jawline. So I go for pain, you know, not unconscious. So uh, I, I think there should be, you know, this, there's this mob, to use your expression, this, this sort of mob mentality of you know, defund the police. I'm the exact opposite. I think you should fund the police. Yeah, more Give training. them more dollars, more training, because God yeah. almighty, the, the, the number of times I've seen police officers draw a gun when it's supposed to be the last measure, right? It's supposed to be physical presence, then verbal then then stick, then OC, then taser, yeah. then gun. It's yeah. the sixth choice. It's yeah. the sixth choice. Yeah. And what I see these officers go is they go from zero to six yeah. right away. And that's because they, they research in gun training twice a year. And yeah. they have not touched hand-to-hand for years, decades, some of them not since the academy. Yeah. Well, you said a lot there I want to unpack. I'm just not sure where to start the uh <laughs> let's, let's do the knee on the neck thing so you sure. said you teach a knee on the neck thing i do as well uh mm-hmm. when taught appropriately and, and and uh it's similar you know from that sort of standing side control where you have a, a shin i teach the shin more on the neck and a neck slash jaw right where you're turning it for alignment to control because even if they're really big right it's deep rooted into the nervous system that if their body thinks, even though it's not, it's, their neck is going to break, even though it's not, so that they don't resist. Now, I right. teach that, but I've noticed in the Krav Maga world, self-defense, law enforcement, people just like they're giving all these reasons why they don't teach it anymore. But I know they're not teaching it because they're scared of the mob getting mad at them for teaching that technique, which they've been told by the media is a bad technique. Right. right. So, you know, it's interesting. You teach it. I teach it. I have no problem saying, yeah, I teach variations of neon neck because it works. Right. It does. Uh, it does. But as you said, you have to be trained to do it. You also need to know when to release because you don't have it, you know, so you can transition. Well, there is with any technique, especially one that requires manipulation of the body, there is precision involved. Yeah. There has to be precision involved. Right. So if, if you're off, then you need to either reassess whether that's the same technique or go to a second technique. Yeah. And I think in some cases people just jump into it and they just apply it and they figure without precision, I'll just, I'll just muscle it. And yeah, bad which you cannot. <laughs> yeah. Bad yeah. things happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now with that being said, there's one area of weakness in Krav Maga, which is grappling. Now I, I've noticed right. it's been picking up lately in the last few years. And I know IKMA does a lot more grappling than uh, a lot of other organizations. Because teaching police requires a knowledge of grappling. Now, unfortunately, yeah. a lot of a lot of uh, Krav Maga instructors grappling is garbage. Um, have you been integrating yeah. a lot of it into your like uh, you know neon belly side control all that? How do you approach grappling I, I do, and teaching it? I, I do from the vantage point of so again, I try to be very um, I'll use the word modular. 
Hmm. So if I'm dealing with just civilians versus if I'm dealing with law enforcement, if I'm dealing yeah. with law enforcement or security, uh, air marshal, whomever, then their position of neon belly or side control is purely a function of getting the cuffs. Yeah. So if I've got to manipulate to get the cuffs, then here's, oh, here's all the things I'm going to have you do. From a civilian vantage point, my vantage point is what do I need to do to get up as quickly as possible? Because I yeah. don't want to stay on the ground as quickly for, for, for very long because two major reasons, right? Well, three. First of all, unlike BJJ mats, um, concrete sucks. And to roll yeah. around on concrete is awful. Uh, two, I don't know if there's going to be a second assailant that can jump in and kick me in the head. Uh, and three, I don't know if the guy I'm, I'm grappling with is suddenly going to pull out a knife and stab me. So I don't want to hang on the ground very long. So everything I do is purely a function of trying to get up and out to a, a better position. But yeah. to our point earlier, law enforcement, you know, uh, they got to be able to work from that position because their position is to, to get them to control. Yeah. Yeah, I know. It's interesting, like the different approaches that Krav Maga people have come with to integrating the grappling like I see a lot of techniques even taught in Israel and you know mm -hmm. I'm just I'm I don't know why they teach it for the ground stuff because I think you're right about that the goal needs to be to get up and if you're doing yep. those techniques your mind is not thinking about getting up so yep. I have a very similar approach is you look first rule number one don't go to the ground rule number two don't go to the ground Rule number three, learn to fall to the ground, because if you can't fall, you're not getting up again. Uh, yep. And then learn to get up fast. And then, yep. then, and only then are you grappling for, for survival. At that point, things have not gone well. And if you're stuck on the ground, it's either because they're so big or they know how to grapple, right? And uh, I encourage everyone to do wrestling and BJJ to supplement their, uh, their Krav Maga, always. I tell people learning BJJ or wrestling on the ground is the same as learning footwork standing. Yeah. You need to know how to move your body and you need to know how to move their body. So if you have that capability, you are that much more effective at doing those, those things you just said about getting up and getting out. Yeah. I find like we're talking politics in the martial arts. It's like trying to explain to people like in the jujitsu community, I remember having conversations, like I do jujitsu. I love it. I spend more time training doing that mm -hmm. than a lot of other things nowadays. Um, but it's just having like that self-defense conversation with them. Like it's hard sometimes to get through to them. Like, like, yes, your technique is high percentage in the ring. I hundred percent agree. Like rear naked choke, a very high percentage. But what purpose does that have in the self-defense world as yeah. far as achieving your goals one way or the other? Uh, it can have, but it's often not appropriate. Like, right. And it gets back to the why. Why am I doing yeah. this? Right. Yeah. Just because it's people tend to fall in love with or I'll say certain organizations tend to fall in love with certain techniques, uh, whether it's because it's cool or because it's effective under these these set of conditions. But, you know, remember, as as Krav was conceived and I was very fortunate in that, you know, Alan Feldman and, and Rip Blitzkin were both students of Emi's. Mm. And I trained directly with them and they would tell me stories of here's what Emi meant when he said this or taught this. And here's what here are the stories he would tell. So I got a lot of those little cool, you know, little behind the scenes stories of the 1981 instructor um, course that took place in Netanya. And if the smallest person in the room can't effectively do this on the biggest person in the room, it, it, it stopped being taught. It yeah. wasn't meant to be taught. And, and that's what people lose track of. So then 
you know, I have a lot of guys and, you know, sadly or whatever, it's mostly guys that train with me. And I try to encourage women to train with me and I have women, but it's probably 80% men, 20% women. Mm. And what I, what I find is, is that guys will pair off with guys of similar size yeah. and they'll work on them and they'll do all these things. And I'll go, guys, that's great. But if you tack on a hundred pounds to the guy who was your partner, how would that work? Yeah. Right. Yeah. I had a, <clears throat> I had an instructor uh, certification for uh, another organization because I just wanted to expand my, my, you know, my portfolio and my partner for the entire five days, six foot five, three seventy five. <laughs> and I'm six foot one, two twenty. Yeah. So he's got 150 pounds on me and about three inches on me. Yeah. And I, I got to tell you, that's a wall of person. That oh, yeah. To move from, right. <laughs> so yeah. that's that's a test. Right. It's a test to see does does the principles of this technique make sense? Does the why still apply? Yeah. And that's that's something I always try to emphasize. Yeah. The size thing is is, is interesting and also hard to for people to kind of get their head around because you know a guy that size oh yeah a lot of techniques are gonna fail it doesn't matter yeah. whether it works on most people it's gonna fail that's why I, I tell people you can't cheat physics but you can cheat it with biology so if yeah. i actually reset his nervous system with the groin strike yeah great there's my chance if i catch him in the eye there's my chance but a lot of the other stuff other than me resetting his nervous system somehow is not mm -hmm. going to work. So like, you know, you'll get the like hundred pound girls that come in and they're like, this is, it just isn't working for me. And I'm like, you're right. You need to develop your skill level to the point where you can compensate for the size difference. And people hate hearing that. It's like, you mean I got to train more? I was like, yep. Cause I think yeah. that like, I take the bell curve sort of approach. You're going to get the 10% of people who are the athletes and I could teach them anything. It's going to work for them. And then yep. you get the bottom 10% where it's like, hey, your self-defenses don't get in fights. And then everybody else in the middle, these techniques will work more or less for you most of the time. But then I also say, in the end of the day, doesn't matter what system you're doing, techniques will fail at a certain mm -hmm. point. And that's why you revert to your principles. Because yep. now you're like, I don't know what to do. That's all I'll tell them. If you're panicking, you don't know what to do, groin or head. Get right. that, and you can you can get enough of a reset. Hopefully, that you can find that escape. Yep. You know, people don't like to admit because the whole sort of I don't know woke, happy go lucky lefty culture is never tell people that they can't do something. And I'm like, dude, the, they're 100 pounds, they're 250. There are certain limitations we need to accept. Yeah, right. and and one of the things I remind people of, and, and this goes back to what you were saying before about just you know military Krav Maga in Israel, some of it's just raw aggression. Yeah, at some at some point you have to turn on the animal, and yeah. you are going to have to you know go at them in a in a in a, in a almost a primal way, and technique will certainly be important. Uh, I had the pleasure of uh, or the privilege I should say of, of training a guy who's a special ops marine and he's a mm. sniper. And, you know, he and I had, and he did three tours of duty in Afghanistan and Iraq. And he's, he's, a, he's the real thing. He's legit. Yeah. And we talked about that. I said, so tell me what the whole point is. Like, what's, what's the, what's the mental that they teach you in special ops? Yeah. And it's simple. He goes first one to a hundred wins. Yeah. And, and I think that's an overlooked conversation. I think, you know, we, we, we want to get technical and we want to give principles and I think that's always important and you have to do those things and that's the, that's the basis of the system 
But at some point, you're not going to just sit there and very casually hit a person in the eye or kick a person in the groin. You're going to have to move and act as aggressively as if your life was depending on it, because it does. Yeah. And again, that, that's not something that everyone is comfortable with. Yeah, especially in North America. Like I always tell Pete, like I have a very when I first started teaching, I was very like, ah, like this. And then I'm, I'm teaching in <laughs> Vancouver. Right. And then it's like I, I toned it down over the years because, you know, I want longevity out of my students. And the other thing is, uh, like I, uh, you can ask my students the, the testing. It like I break people in the testing and I tell them, you know, if you get injured in the test, you got to finish. Otherwise, I'm not passing you. But in training, yeah. in training. If you get hurt enough, yeah, you can sit down. It's fine. Um, of course. I'm just coaxing, getting North Americans that didn't grow up in a rough neighborhood mm-hmm. to be aggressive and realize that it's okay to be violent if you need it is a very tough thing sometimes. How have you, how have you been approaching that? Yeah, I totally agree. And it's funny. I, I try to, I, I kind of go through um, a progression. So I'll teach techniques and I'll teach them as far as this is how it works and this is how it works in a static way. And then by the end of class, working it dynamically and dynamic with aggression and non-compliance. And, wow. you know, and you start to see things fall apart and then people yeah. just give up. And they go, oh, it's not working. And they throw their hands in the air. So, well, you, you stopped, you stopped working. It yeah. didn't stop work. You stopped working. Yeah. And, and I have to build people into this world of, you know, you're going to have to get sweaty and you're going to be roughed up a little bit. And, uh, you know, I have, I do a lot of privates. I do about 28 privates a week. Oh, that's and, a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's 28 privates a week. And I will pull out the boxing gloves. And when we're doing stuff on the ground, I will tell them that until they actually do something to me that make me stop, I am going to punch them in the face. Yeah. And I will continue to punch them in the face. Now, they're, they're 16-ounce gloves, but yeah. I'm still punching them. Yeah. And uh, I, had a, I had a student of mine who we were working a certain you know, process on the ground. Uh, and I got into his mount and I was banging on him and banging on him and banging on him. And, you know, he finally brought me in and he literally took his thumb and rammed it into my eye. I mean, legitimately rammed yeah. it into my eye to my point where I just put both hands in the air and rolled away because that was yeah. just too much pain to contend with. And I said, well, yeah, you got you got the point of it now. Yeah. But and, until I until I ramped it up to that, it was, you know, it was a color by numbers class. Right. Yeah. It was, you know, I, I'm going to do this and you're going to do this. I'm like, well, no, you, you have to earn that moment. You didn't earn it. And yeah. you're correct. North Americans are very soft in that regard. And I, I think like that is to me what the like, good Krama God training is. It's we're, again, we're, we're training that nervous system response. You basically had to make that guy literally feel like he's so overwhelmed for him right. to, to, to react. Um, yep. you, you know, I, that's how I know it's work. When I, that's how I can tell when students are getting it because you know what, if they're being overwhelmed and they're just like covering, I know their nervous system isn't in the point where they can actually handle it versus the students who've been around or individuals who've experienced, you know, life, let's say, uh, they just go, right? And there's yeah. a huge difference. Like I did a drill the other day. I, I need to do it more. I always, I always forget to do the fun drills sometimes because, you know, we get in our routine. So, yeah. you know, you do 360, you're doing the knives and stuff. My other instructor is like, hey, we really need to do the white T-shirt uh, marker pen thing. And yeah. we're doing the exact same techniques. And all of a sudden, I'm noticing, it's expected, of course, that everyone's nervous system is through the roof now. All yeah. of a sudden, they're seeing, uh, you know, the marks 
where they normally don't see anything and all of a sudden the people who are have no problem with aggression they're acting like it's a real thing now and, and all yeah. of a sudden the people who aren't used to an overwhelmed ne nervous system are panicking and just changing the parameters enough like that to give them a visual cue all of a sudden you start to see who who is trained enough that they could survive and who needs more training because they're panicking still right and i think that's i think that's what they internet is missing about Krav Maga is that mm -hmm. aspect of it. Well, Krav Maga didn't invent anything. Again, if yeah. we're going to really take a hard look at ourselves and be honest, we didn't invent any one technique so much. We didn't invent any striking, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. uh, our methodology for training is more aggressive, and we try to build more of that sense of life or death. And again, weapon work is certainly where we specialize, but it's the same yeah. premise. Your your uh, red marker drill is my shock knife drill. Yeah. So I got I got shock knives. Yeah. So it's just that big, and everyone as soon as they hear that man, their their adrenaline starts to go. It's not even a bad shock, but nobody wants it. Yeah. I and, would have uh, shock knives. Uh, unfortunately, there's a situation where they're not illegal here. However, mm -hmm. I feel like the RCMP has scared the living crap out of the business that sells them, and they refuse right. to sell them to anyone in Canada. Uh, that isn't law enforcement or military, but there's no ban on them. So it's like one of those weird, like, can I get my shock knife, guys? No. Why not? Yeah. Uh, because <laughs> I, I played with them once or twice because I had friends who had them, but uh, they're an effective tool to a point, though, because if you get used to them and you're like, you, you don't fear it anymore. Uh, you know? I totally agree with you. Well, so, so I, I have a fun story. So Rick Blitzstein, he, uh, have you ever trained with Rick? No, I've never met him, uh, unfortunately. Rick, Rick, again, is one of Amy's students, and yeah. uh, he trains people out of Miami, and he doesn't have a studio. He actually trains people on the corner by a beach. Yeah. That's, if, it's, if it's a pretty day, it's training day. If it's a bad day, he's not training anybody. Yeah. So he was working a class outside, and there's a park bench that's overlooking what they're doing. There's this old Korean guy sort of sitting there watching him, and he's got his dog, and Rick's happened to be working a knife class and Rick is watching this guy sort of, you know, look at it and kind of nod and shake his head a little bit. And, you know, he's obviously got some opinions on what he was doing. So Rick mm -hmm. goes over and asks the guy says, you know, do you, um, do you know knife work? He goes, yeah, I, I, I learned it in the Korean army. Mm -hmm. He said, really? He said, you know, do you have any points of view on this? He goes, well, basically no one's acting with any level of urgency. They're not treating the knife like a knife. Yeah. treating because they're all they're all plastic rubber knives the stuff we've all seen so he says do you mind if i if i step into the class for a second and rick says no by all means please do so the guy takes the the knife that rick's holding mm. and remind you he's outdoors and he walks around and he finds a pile of dog dog shit yeah and he he rubs the knife in the dog shit yeah <laughs> <laughs> And boy, oh boy, nobody wanted to be touched by that. It gave an yeah. entirely different new feel to not having that knife come anywhere near them. And yeah. uh, I remember that story because I remember that's, that's a realistic way of thinking, not that I'm going to start doing that in my own house, <laughs> but, but the premise that says you got to make their experience less pleasant, right? If yeah. I get a rubber knife into my chest or my shoulder, I don't think about it. Like, oh, oops. But yeah. I didn't I didn't really move with any level of concern because there was never any real risk to me. So, yeah, yeah it's uh, it's important. Yeah. And it's, well, it's two things like you need to get people to realize it's life or death 
but also at the simultaneously, particularly in North America with like insurance and all that, the uh, you got to keep people safe. And so yep. for an example is, you know, occasionally I get a big, strong student or someone who had a rough life and their nervous system goes like, boom, as soon as we start doing anything. And then they just start messing up other students and no one wants to play with them. So it's like a fine game. How do you like train people so they understand that they can get that reaction that they need without killing each other? Um, right. Which which I think is why that that myth of like, oh, these techniques are too deadly to train, which is nonsense. It's just learn to be a good training partner. Like, you know, it's, yeah. it, but uh, there's definitely something we say you want to break those patterns because even in Krav, if you're just doing the same, you know, an overhead knife and it's always the same and don't change it up, um, people get overwhelmed and then it defeats the purpose of, uh, of the training. But that's uh, dog shit is an interesting way to do it. I think. <laughs> it worked. Yeah. <laughs> and then I think like, so it, Israel being the source and the, the sort of, traditional ideology of Krav Maga is it's, oh, the, the special forces. I always like to remind people that if you're in special forces, physically speaking and potentially mentally, you are the top tier of human beings. And yeah. how I teach you is going to be very different than to the person who can barely uh, move their body because you have right. to like build people up. And I think a lot of the like the bravos around Krav Maga is that a lot of the top instructors at least in Israel, are so used to training the best of the best physically. Mm. And they don't know how to necessarily build a program right, building right. someone from nothing. Right. Uh, what, right. How, have you, what are your thoughts on that? I agree. And, and, and I think that's, you know, that's one of those things where um, a true instructor is going to be able to evaluate what they have and modify how they teach based on the abilities the person, you know, is standing in front of them has. You know, yeah. he, again, another another quote I was taught by Alan Feldman that Amy said goes, you know, you don't change to fit Krabaga, Krabaga changes to fit you. Yeah. And and that's that's always been the philosophy. But you're right. There's, if you're used to just training the best of the best and, and, and those who are already emotionally and psychologically committed to the fight, um, you have an advantage. People yeah. who I train civilians. Right. We'll just talk about my people. These people have some of these people have never been in a fight in their entire lives. Yeah. They have no idea what it's like. They fear a fight, you know, rightfully, but they don't even have a perspective on what it feels like to be hit. Mm. I, I had I had one guy who was a uh, a extreme skier, so he'd go helicopter skiing in the Alps and do all these you know crazy uh, CrossFit kind of things. He was jacked in all manners. He was so he came and trained with me for a little while. And we're working inside defenses and outside defenses, and I'm and I'm throwing and I'm chucking punches at him. Like I'm, I mean them. Yeah. And at one point, he kind of misses the block, but I pulled it just about an inch from his face. I knew he was about to clock him. And he goes, "Wow, that was that was close." He goes, "You know, I've never been punched before." Yeah. Now he's in his forties. <laughs> so I so I said to him, I said, "Well, I said the the most liberating thing you'll ever find is I will punch you in the face someday, you know, not intentionally in the sense of you know." It'll be part of a drill and you'll miss and you'll realize it didn't kill you. And that'll be the most liberating moment of your life. Yeah. He, he bowed out of that class and never came back. Yeah. That's uh, I, I've had a situation like that is uh, I was teaching at a university, which I generally don't like to do anymore because I can't stand the culture. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, this kid, I was demonstrating something and he, I don't know, decided to be a smart ass and I'm just like, he knew what I was showing. I'm like, just sort of guiding it. And he flinched and in a very aggressive way. And I ended up hitting him in the face. 
and he'd oh. never been hit before. And his immediate response was, uh, I pulled my punch, but I still made contact. And it, he just like covered his face and just like sat down. Yeah. And yeah. never came back. And it's like, yeah, that, you know, that is why in my school, I require sparring. I'm not trying to yeah. turn people into MMA fighters, kickboxers. And the sparring looks nothing like the technical stuff, but it's to no. do with that mental development. Like, I want you to be able to get hit and hit. I want you to know yeah. how you can move and how to know your ranges. And I, you know, I know there's a lot of Krav Maga schools that don't do sparring. And I just don't know how you can run a school like that in the, in the modern world, you know? Well, you can, yeah. I I, I, I have people sparring. Uh, I have yeah. sparring classes on Sundays and, and, you know, I tell people it's, it's, it's as important as anything else to know that you can take a hit and give a hit. Yeah. And, and it's something else it's as simple as that. And I tell them, you're, you're not going to go for technical perfection. You know, you're not yeah. going to sit there and execute all these great things that you do in a drill because it's free flow, right? Just free form. But if, if in the process of doing this, you get hit or kicked or whatever, and you're able to gather your mind and come back, well, that already is a skill that you need to have in a real violent moment. So yeah. that's it's worth the price of admission. Yeah. Well, it's like, uh, you know, you mentioned the spear system. Uh, I haven't trained with him yet. COVID threw a lot of my plan, plans off, but uh, he always talks about fear, you know, and overcoming fear. And, mm -hmm. and to me, that's what it is. Because if you're like a suburb person who's never experienced violence, never been hit, and then all of a sudden you get hit, it's going to overwhelm your nervous system. And... Right. Uh, you know, like I talk, I've been thinking about like PTSD and explaining it to some people. It's like just because something bad happened, you doesn't mean you have trauma. But what, where the trauma comes is for your experience, it's so overwhelming that you don't know what to do with it. And the example is like World War One shell shock before we right. started looking into it. Well, can you imagine being a farmer taking care of goats and sheep in a peaceful, right. quiet village, birds every morning? You know, maybe this craziest thing that happens is someone new visits town and then all of a sudden you're in a war with guns and tanks, which you've never heard of or thought of before, and artillery, which is conceptually disastrous for you. And you look at someone who's you can look at the videos of someone who's shell shocked, and it was right, just right. such an overwhelming experience. Like shell shock even is worse than a lot of people who've experienced like modern PTSD because it's the, just the concept of the war in that way is so beyond what they could handle and they just were fried. And so that, you know, that's why I talk about like the nervous system a lot is if your nervous system can't handle violence, you will be easily overwhelmed. Right. And that's, that's one of my goals with, with, with students is to make them realize what they can and cannot handle before they get overwhelmed. So time to run. Do you yeah. approach like that? Yeah, I totally think so. I, I think it's it's uh, the psychology of, of violence is as important as understanding the you know, the actual tactical of violence and yeah. being able to understand what's going on in front of you and understanding how to deal with whether it's the first shot, whether someone just sucker punched you, or even if someone's standing in front of you just you know grabbing grabbing you by the shoulders and shaking you. Yeah. That's a hugely uh, distressing moment for many people. And being able to formulate a thought: What do I do now? is as much an organization of the brain as it is an understanding of the technique yeah so you you gotta you gotta overcome the the oh shit if you will this is now really happening my god it's really happening yeah. and then once you're past that osm as they say that oh shit moment once you're past the osm you're now in a place where you gotta now 
do something. So it's, I totally agree with you. It's, yeah. um, it's, it's, it's part of training, right? It, 14 years of karate, no disrespect to the system at all, or to the art of, of, uh, of, of karate as, as a martial art. At no point did it ever translate the forms of the techniques towards a violent moment. It didn't happen. Yeah. It, it never did. Other than, you know, some very light sparring that was point sparring. And even that was low risk. There was no injury. Yeah. You know, you didn't have a point of view as to when would I ever use this. So the the, the stories you hear, uh, at least in the U.S., I'm sure it's a, globally, of these black belts in whatever system getting their butts handed to them in a bar, you know, is, is, is not surprising to me. And it's not because black belts are meaningless. But unless you can translate what you're learning on the mats to what's happening in front of you, it's it's almost you know extraneous information. They don't know what to do with it. Yeah, that reminds me of a story one of my students told me once. So they'd been doing judo for a, like a long portion of their life, uh, and judo is a you know great great base to have as a martial art compared to mm -hmm. some other stuff. And he had been doing krav maga for I don't know six months a year two years I don't know whatever it was. And someone like jokingly snuck up on him at his car. And his immediate response uh, was to turn and like hands up right away. And he said to me after that, he's like, you know, all the years of judo that I had, I would never respond like that right. if something surprised me. And all of a sudden, after a little bit of Krav Maga, I actually responded in a way that would put me in a position to be able to defend myself. Yeah. Right? Nothing against judo. Judo is one of the better overall martial arts. Um, but it was just like that. If you're only training for competition and you're not caught off guard, because right, if we're going into a prepared fight where I know I'm going into it, we're both standing there. Okay, we're ready to fight. My mind's in a place versus that, like, what's happening? Yeah. That, oh, shit, like, I got to go now, right? Yeah, it, it's, it's a whole other mindset. I, I talk about you being in Krav mode versus yeah. being in relaxed mode. You're in Krav mode. Yeah, I know what I'm going to do. I have, I have that Rolodex open. Right. Yeah. Everything in my brain about fighting is already open. I'm thinking about all those things. I leave the mats. I go grab my cup of coffee and I'm off living my life. I'm not thinking about that stuff. Yeah. And then how I react is a whole other discussion. I had a, I had a funny moment to play out probably about 10 years ago. I was at a diner um, right off the Merritt Parkway, which is like a big highway off Connecticut. And I'm just sitting there at the counter having my eggs and the coffee and I'm not paying attention. I'm by myself. I'm not paying attention to anything. And <clears throat> without knowing this is happening, one of my students walks in mm. and sneaks up behind me yeah. and throws me into a rear naked choke. Yeah. Now, he didn't announce himself. He just yeah. slapped on the rear naked. So I reached right back and I gouged his eye. The first thing yeah. I did is I gouged his eyes. He's like, oh, Gus, what are you doing? I'm like, <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> what did you think? I was going to do. Yeah. I was going to, you know, so it's, you know, part of what you and I train both ourselves and our students is it's a reaction. Mm -hmm. You got to, you got to go. I'm sitting there having eggs and coffee and I'm suddenly without a wit, you know, I'm suddenly got a rear naked choke on me. You got to go do something right away. You can't think about it. Yeah. Yeah. It all depends where your nervous system is too. Like I remember when I came back from the military, like I didn't have like crazy, crazy experience, but when you go from like, Literally, like I was sleep deprived for most of the military and, you know, you're always on edge and all that sort of stuff. And then I come back here and for, for a while, like uh, if you snuck up on me, I'm going to go. And it took a yeah. long time for me to like calm down to the point and people would get mad at me like, what the hell? I'm like, wow, you know what I do? Like, don't sneak up on me. 
right? And I think yeah. I'm at the point now where I've calmed down a bit. Like I can feel if it's a threat or not. Usually, uh, mm-hmm. fortunately, people don't go around sneaking up on you usually. Um, but I, I think no. there is that you need to get to the level because I know some um, Kramaga people who their nervous systems are shot, like for whatever reason, and they don't know how not to go a hundred percent. Right. So I think at a right. certain point you need to be able to realize in that split second, this is not a real threat versus it is. Uh, what do you think about that? From my yeah, perspective. Uh, well, yeah, it's, it's, you know, there's a difference between being paranoid and being vigilant, right? You yeah. know, paranoid person thinks they're about to be attacked at all times and they're, they're to use your expression, right? They're, they're, they're just shot. You know, vigilance is vigilance. You know, I, I, I take a look around me, I see what's going on and I relax because I know I have answers to what I need to do and I can go on about my day. But yeah, if you're if you're constantly on edge thinking that any person that turns the corner is going to be an attacker, man, that's a horrible way to live. I, yeah, I, I, I don't recommend it and I don't want it. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, as, as I was talking about like paranoia, like with various students, I'm like, because I think, you know, we circle back to that Hollywood thing is a lot of people think even professional martial artists that people are going to always attack this way because this is the training, you know, like a Filipino Kali right. martial artist or or, or, or or something like that. Sorry, I lost my train of thought. Where did I start that story with? You were talking Hollywood. What? You were talking about Hollywood. Before that. This is where you can tell I didn't sleep very well. (laughs) Um, You were saying about staying vigilant or paranoid. You were talking about being paranoid. It's not like the movies. That's what you were saying. Yeah, I totally forgot my point. Oh, well. But yeah, I can go back to the, that thing is that, you know, I can go on that other tangent where people think, that uh, this is how people attack. Oh, now yeah. I remember. Is that if people attack like that and they're all sneaky, what I've found is that it's usually a professional doing that. Took right. me a while. And people always think that someone is going to attack like a professional, say a professional Kali artist or a professional MMA fighter. And my perspective is, listen, if a professional is after you, you've screwed up in your life decision making <laughs> right yeah because yeah, you're yeah. probably gonna die yeah. if you if you think a professional is after you you should be in paranoia now because you're like someone is out to get me who knows how to do it what did i do wrong because everyone always thinks that that is going to be their self-defense situation but really it's more of someone's just pissed off in the moment and does some big motion and you got to react to it Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think you're entirely right. And, you know, I think what you see, if you just follow YouTube and look at all the websites to talk about street fights or real street fights or, you know, those things that are shot from smartphones and closed circuit cameras, most people have no idea what they're doing. Yeah. It's, it's an amazing display of ineptitude. They have no, they, they're throwing, they're chucking haymakers, you know, they're, they're flailing their bodies. And I don't worry and I tell my students they shouldn't worry about, you know, having Steven Seagal come in yeah. after them. This is, this, is, this is not your problem. Your problem is not someone like Steven Seagal. Your problem is going to be, you know, is going to be someone that has absolutely little to no training who's pissed at you because, you know, you bumped into them and they sp- you spilt their beer and they're going to just chuck a punch at your face because they're half drunk, giving yeah. them even less control. Yeah, which actually circles back to like the policing thing is that's usually yeah. the type of people attacking them and they can barely handle that half the time. And, you know, I think, Correct. you know, the conversation 
about how you know, Kramagod's getting bullied a little bit online right now. For lack of a better word, I wouldn't call it bullying, but uh, yeah, it's I just it. like that disconnect. The mm -hmm. when you have professionals talking about the most efficient way to attack professionals, and then they get in the mindset that that's that's what it is always, and then someone comes along doing something that a basic untrained human being does and they're like what the hell and the assumption is that they can just do what they do against the professionals which hypothetically is the best of the best but like so let's take wrestling for example right double leg shoot or you know underhooks overhooks amazing mm -hmm. tools they and that's your go-to response and then they had a knife and you didn't see it and then right. i always bring that i always bring that up and it's like yes it's best it's wrestling is one of the best tools for unarmed combat if that's your reflex and they had a knife, you did not address the, uh, the bending of the elbow, you know, right, deep right. underhook under the armpit. It's an amazingly effective tool, but not if they have a knife in hand. Now you yeah. got stabbed three, four, five times, right? Yeah. It's like, I, uh, I actually train people out of a, I sublet out of a gym, which is a BJJ gym. Yeah. So um, at least two or three times a week, I actually have a BJJ class happening in front of me. Mm. while I'm teaching my private client and uh, it's cool to watch because you start to see what these guys are doing and you know these are some skilled guys I'm training with and they've invited me in to say hey, they're all they're all cool guys great guys we're all um, super friendly and you know super accommodating but when you realize the level of skill they possess you realize hey, you don't want to be on the ground with these guys no no you don't it's, yeah. it's a bad it's a bad day it's a super yeah. bad day if these guys are on the ground with you yeah. but at the same time you know as you just said, if the weapon comes out, even they're going to have trouble. Yeah. Well, because they don't know what to do. They go to their natural reflex movement, right? right? And they'll say, you know, it's obvious, grab the arm, the weapon arm. And I'm like, yeah, but if you aren't training that, a lot of people don't think to do that right away. You know, and especially some of the more modern, um, fancy competition style jujitsu, like barambolos and stuff. Right. And it, it uh, it doesn't translate into practical self-defense. Now, like I had a student, he's about, mm, I don't know, 6'2". He's he's athlete, although I don't know if I call baseball an athletic <laughs> shots fired. Um, and he, he finally started doing jujitsu. He is stronger than me. He is faster than me. He's got better response time than me. I am no delusions about my capabilities as a human being. I'm a small, non-athletic instructor. But... I rolled with him and I got mount on him so many times because he doesn't know how to move his body for that purpose. And I always tell people like, that's why you don't go to the ground. You just don't want to deal with that, that mess. But then I tell the jujitsu guys, like guys, some of you might be able to do just fine in self-defense, but you, you're forgetting like what violence is sometimes. And it's not just what you think it is. It's not just the ability to dominate the other person. It's, the right. ability, you know, situational awareness and what's going on. Uh, I think there's this really good video on YouTube. I, I hope it's still up where this guy has this other person mounted and he's just teeing off on the guy's face from mount. And he's like, it's just so hilarious. He's like, unfortunately, he's like, I'm the champ. I told you I'm the champ. And then I guess the guy's mom or girlfriend comes by. So the guy on the bottom, his mom or girlfriend <laughs> comes and just soccer kicks the guy in the face. And yeah, I'm like, one, that's karma. Yeah knock them out cold and it's like people they get tunnel vision on on the strategies of uh like i teach i actually don't like teaching people to be in mount unless they for the street unless they absolutely have to like for policing i'd rather be them in side control because you can yep. get up faster uh yep. if you have to yep. push off their face mm -hmm. and get up but 
the traditional guys or the MMA guys like, no, 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 mount, mount's where you want to be. I'm like, is it though? Because you forget right. about your ability to need to, to bail now if you have to. You can't do that in mount because as soon as you stand up, if they're aggressive too, they're going to grab something like a leg and then you're going to be yeah. stuck there for a second. If they have a buddy about to jump in, you know, they, yeah. can, they can grab your legs and prevent you from actually getting up on a one or two count. And now you're a sitting duck with the punch or the kick. Yeah. yeah. Now, do you, do you participate in jiu-jitsu at all or are you just a casual observer integrating a little bit here and there? I uh, I did BJJ for about six months. I had privates with a, uh, a, a black belt and basically he gave me uh, sort of the rules and the tools of the ground. And I looked at it more from a motion standpoint. I wanted to know how to move. So, you know, so from the stripping aspects to getting out of these respective positions. And we started playing a game and the game would be, uh, we would um, we'd roll with each other, but every other round was rules or no rules yeah so if there were rules it was you know someone had to tap out now for the record i never tapped him out it never happened <laughs> i didn't i never thought it was going to happen and i never got it to happen and he would yeah. tap me out typically i was reasonably defensive but literally within a minute minute and 15 minute 30 i was out i was i was you know i was tapping something but on the no rules one it was as soon as i could you know, go to the throat, go to the eye, go to the groin, you know, go to a wrist lock, finger lock, whatnot. You know, if I could, if I could get to a stand up position, I, you know, that was victory for me. Yeah. And I was able to do that with him more times than not. Yeah. And uh, I mean, that didn't, wasn't hundred percent, but it was probably about 70% of the time, seven out of 10 times I was able to get to a standing position. Yeah. And it's kind of what you were saying, right? It's you, you do what you train. So you get a you get a black belt in BJJ who's rolling with you, and they do BJJ things, and they think in terms of BJJ rules, and they don't yeah. act in a certain way. And it's not to say he's not a great you know uh, BJJ expert. It's just when you go to no rules, my my tendency to going to places that just cause pain immediately uh, was enough to roll him off and me to stand up right away. So it's yeah. a, it's just a different different process. But I need to get back to it because I haven't done that in a couple of years. Yeah, oh, it's I love it. It's it's great. It's uh, it's got a lot of longevity to it. But I'm always having that conversation again, guys. I don't even though you can kick my ass in jujitsu, I like some of them might be able to beat me in the street. I like who knows. Yeah. But that's why I avoid the fight. Um, it's like who's willing to be violent first? You know, I had a student who was just a dominant human being, and I was showing ground stuff, and then he put I'm I'm demonstrating something, and I'm in. So he has me in side control and he's putting absolute all the pressure that he can put on me. And I'm like, he actually had my neck and head isolated, so I cannot move. Right. Mm -hmm. He's being a bit of a smart off. I couldn't even reach his eye, which would be my normal stance. So I just sure. grabbed his ear and pulled it as hard as I could. Yep. And yep. all of a sudden he's like, what, the, what are you doing? I'm like, hey, if you want to play, I'll play. Like, right. this is the only way I'm getting out of this situation is I escalate the violence to a level of comfortable. And then I always remind people, say side control. The good news about side control is in order for them to maintain the position, effectively, they can't strike very well. They have to maintain nope. that pressure. So as soon as they posture up to strike, there's your chance. And, uh, you know, people always forget that, the timing of everything and the distance. I, I, re I remind people that uh, from, again, the no rules conversation that Frog certainly has, you know, biting is okay yeah and there have been a couple of occasions where you know the way they were rolling on top of me i had flesh right right yeah. by my mouth and yeah. again you don't want to bite your your friend but at yeah. the same time you show it and it reminds them 
that yeah. it's that's also a strategy, right? That's yeah. that's a tactic I can use to get you to move because that is also it's a primal moment. I'm biting you. You're gonna push yourself way off me right away. Yeah. I, uh, with biting is an interesting one. Like I know, I know some instructors who like insist that I'm going to always remind people to bite. And I, I found like one, I'm, I'm a bit concerned about uh, bloodborne pathogens and other stuff sure. in, in the modern world. But I also, I, I sort of saw like that a lot of the human population is never, ever, ever. They just don't have it in them to do that. Oh, and, uh, I sort of agreed. sussed it out like, Hey, I want to remind you guys, you can bite, but, uh, just be careful if you do. And I think those who will, will do it. Like I bit my girlfriend once just for the hell of it when she was like, had me in a dog, like not hard, just like, mm-hmm. I'm reminding you. She's like, what the hell are you doing? I'm like, well, I can't get out of the position. So I just bit you. <laughs> and and it does, as you said, it reminds, reminds people like, I mean, even Bruce Lee talks about it. Um, yeah. when he, he bit them in the arm bar and people forget about that. If it's survival, it's gonna you're, you're gonna do whatever you have to do to get out, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I I oh, think most definitely, and and that's yeah, could continue. Right. No, I mean, and and I think that's it's got to be it's it's a no rules, you know, no rules is is no rules. And yeah. uh, when when I when I talk about this stuff, I'll talk about how you snap a finger, or how you how you, how you bite a person, you know, how you stick your thumb in someone's eye, and there's a a good percentage of my students who just they cringe they go oh my yeah. god how could yeah. you and then I, I have to give them something to think about like yeah. this is someone attacking your daughter wife mother you know this is someone near and dear to you that if you fail they die and yeah. then then they can kind of put their head there but it's 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 a it's a hard it's a hard concept yeah for some people like I sort of pick out like, no, they'll do it because you do get students occasionally who just automatically grab fingers. And I'm like, awesome. You keep that reflex. Just don't do it in training because you're going to break someone's finger. <laughs> and then other people, uh, they just don't have it in them, I've found. And it's a, that's where I'm like, listen, you really need to be aware. You need to run. You need to make smart, smart decisions. Uh, it's always funny, like the different perspectives. So like, say someone has you mounted in the choke, right? I teach a variation of where you pluck single pluck and, and mitigate their weight. If they're leaning forward, you get them in the, in that soft spot in the throat just to get their weight up for a second. And I show yep. this sometimes, uh, and the jujitsu guys were like, Oh yeah, I'll armbar you. I'm like, will you like, is that the intent of a rapist or somebody who's mounted choking someone? Are they really thinking about an armbar? I don't think so. You know, it's right. just such a reflexive response. Oh, you're exposing your arms. They're gonna armbar you. I'm like, yeah, it's there. I don't, I don't think that's a threat though, right? In that situation, right? And understanding right. that mental, mental aspect of what's the, what is the mental state of frame of mind of the person attacking? Yeah, right? it's not what you think it is. <laughs> yeah. Right, and it's and it's not a sport, right? We're not in sport mode. Yeah. So if we're in sport mode, I, I look at a sport as a sport, and therefore I'm looking at measures and countermeasures. So yeah. you give me this, I'll give you that. But if we're under a violent attack for sexual assault, as you were saying, then yeah. that person isn't going to suddenly flip to an armbar. What, what is that about? That's yeah. that is that's the furthest thing from their mind in that moment because yeah. they're they're trying to accomplish something, and, that, and it had nothing to do with you know winning a winning a BJJ role. Yeah, yeah. mindset is everything. Seems to be the theme today. Now, I did want to ask, because we're getting to the tail end of COVID, how has that affected business? How have you managed it? My fortunate 
business is uh, I'm a one-on-one training guy. So yeah. I took I took 60 days off as was required by the U.S. government. Mm. And after 60 days, I started getting phone calls and texts and emails from my clients going, um, I'm good if you are. Yeah. And because it's a one-on-one, we both, you know, we all COVID tested ourselves, walked into my gym and it was just the two of us in a, in a enclosed room. So yeah. I was able to, from June last year, to continue uh, to train people. So I lost a bunch of students, but yeah. I picked up some students who had all this extra time because they were jobs. Their jobs suddenly became remote. Yeah. So I was able to, I was able to survive. Okay. How, how about you? Uh, it was, it's, I'm okay. Like where I live, it's very, it's an interesting, like, I, I, I want to, don't want to say too much so I don't get in trouble, but I think it should be okay. It's that I'm in British Columbia and British Columbia is a very strange place politically and mentally is that on the surface people talk like here's the rules this is what you have to do but then kind of quietly everyone is doing something else and uh i mean i think it really shows that the covid panic was way over the top and i think heads are going to roll about some decisions made all over the world about this but Mm -hmm. uh we were we had to stay closed for the first two or three months Mm-hmm. And I'm, I was relatively okay with that because I'm like, we, I just don't know enough about this virus to really make a decision one, one way or the other. And about within two weeks in, I started doing Zoom classes. Now, I don't have a very big student base, so I lost a lot initially and it was, I was a little panicked. Right? I had to close one of my other locations, which was probably okay because it wasn't doing very well. It wasn't a good location anyway. Um, started doing Zoom. Zoom does not work for Krav Maga. It just no, does no. not. And a lot of my students were saying the same thing, like, I don't want to do this. Um, right. So as, and I started, I switched for the sake of keeping people active. I'm like, okay, we're doing hit via Zoom for the first 30 minutes. And then I'm going to remind you of the techniques that we're doing. I just want you to know this is not what I want to be doing. But my goal at that point was I want to keep people active. Like it's really important right. for me to keep people active. And then, uh, you know, about three months in the government's like, okay, you can open up after the first wave. So we open up, no problem. People start coming back, start building up. And then, you know, the second or third wave, whatever they want to call it, hits. And all of a sudden they go all draconian again, shut down. Um, You're going to find that the evidence for these lockdowns didn't exist. And it was all based on political, like the courts in Canada are starting to show that. So, uh, you know, me being an evidence-based person, I'm very frustrated with governments around the world and scientists around the world who are not being honest about that. So my strategy along with the other, let's just say, this is BC specific, is we're listening to what they're saying. What rules and regulations do we need to follow to operate? Now, our local government was not making much sense. One week they'd say one thing, the other week they'd say another, and everyone starts to look around and being like, is there a problem here? As right. in, is me operating going to affect my students' health or well-being? And the consistent voice, at least in our community, at least under the, under the radar, I think I can fairly confidently say this publicly now because the courts are basically telling the governments to fuck off, essentially. And I mean that. <laughs> um, is that it's, they realize the health and well-being of their students, it's more important for them to come in and train than any risk they had for COVID because we're not teaching 80-year-olds. So we're not teaching at-risk people. We're teaching usually people under 40. And I'm talking about the 
general martial arts community that had a little bit of common sense. And I, a lot of schools were open one way or another, even if they weren't supposed to be. Supposed to be. Yeah. And yet it did not have any significant effect on the COVID numbers whatsoever. And it really showed the governments are full of shit on this topic at this point. And I know it's a controversial stance to take, but I'm looking at the evidence and I think we're going to start to see that we've been lied to about a lot of stuff. And so that's the community here. But then you talk about the community in Ontario or Alberta where for whatever goddamn reason, the governments went full psycho on the rule sets. Now, I know the culture here that the police in this province, off the record, allegedly did not support the rules. And they really did not want to enforce them if they didn't have to, because they're like, this is silly. Now, Ontario is a different situation where you have, because uh, we have the RCMP and BC and the city police, and we have a much more laid back attitude. Like you can see it, uh, with the drug stance, the drug stance in BC for a long time, even before legalization, it was like, listen, don't be an idiot. If you're not a major drug dealer, we're not going to come after you. Don't be stupid. You go to a place like Ontario and Alberta, and they still sort of had like this old school, like don't break the law. So you right. saw in Ontario, they have provincial police, the Ontario police force and city police for the most part, RCMP or some places. Now, who gets the funding? The, the Ontario police, it is funded by the provincial government who has taken the stance of we're going to go authoritarian, lock everything down. And if you understand Ontario politics, it has to do with the fact that Toronto people are anxiety ridden, left wing, believe the narrative kind of people. So it's all about the vote. Well, the city police, even Toronto city police were like, listen, the rules you want us to enforce are against the Constitution. We're not doing that. And then the Ontario police, you saw videos of them just like arresting teenagers or ticketing teenagers for being in a park by themselves because who pays their bills? It's the provincial government who who has the rule set. So how a school handled COVID in Canada largely depends on which province you're in, because even though the federal government was saying one thing, our prime minister is an he's an idiot. And, and whether they openly say it or not, the provincial leaders kind of have started ignoring him to some degree. Mm-hmm. And they're kind of just doing their own thing now, which is not good for the Canadian Confederacy. And everyone's pretending like he's such a wonderful person, but he's, he's destroying this country as far as its unity goes. Um, so it really depends. Now, I will say what, what he did do, which America didn't do, is if your business is affected heavily, they basically handed out a crap load of money. Which right. I, I took because it's like, listen, you're forcing me to close. So you're paying me to stay closed. Okay, that's yeah. free market. Fine. I have no problem because a lot of you know libertarians will be like, how dare you take that money? And I'm like, well, right. I don't want to have to take him to court. So I'll take the money because I think that's fair compensation. Now, he's probably going to end up bankrupting our country because he printed out so much money. It's going to be a disaster. It's like that catch 22, right? So I managed to survive because I'm in BC where we're a bit, we know the politicians are not serious about, they're doing it for the Karens at this point, the rules where where I live, at least Ontario and Alberta, they've just decided to go ridiculous. Like I I could not stand, I think my school would have closed outright because even the money that we were given by the government, it's not enough to last a year. It's just not enough. Mm -hmm. They give you the money to pay the bills that you have to pay and you can't get out of 
but they didn't give you my extra money to sustain your livelihood. So it's like anyone who was able to stay open somehow and work figured out a way to do it. And anyone who is a by the book rules person basically closed their doors um, yep. because they couldn't read between the lines, which is, you know, it's complicated. <laughs> How do I not get sued by the government, but pay my bills? Right. It's uh, you got to that's I take it as a self-defense lesson is what are the rules and what rules can I break? So in like self-defense, if I kill them, am I going to go to jail self-defense? But hey, if I kick them in the groin, is that OK? It's like the same sort of concept where I got to realize what I can get away with and, and not get away with. Um, and your strategy for survival is interesting. The, the private lesson, private lesson thing, because I don't think I could do that. I don't think I could teach 28 lessons a week all week long. It's a different kind know, of lesson. Yeah. It's a different lifestyle. So it's, uh, it's very, uh, uh, it's very myopic, right? Every, yeah. every client has their time with me and it's one hour privates do it 28 times a week. And, you know, it's makes it makes for a, you know, an easy business model. Cause it's all about done by, uh, by appointment. Yeah. And, but yeah, it's, it makes for a long week too. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I have done it on occasion. Uh, I think it also has depend with like where you live, like New York state, in New York surrounding area, there's so much population and there's enough collective wealth and varied that it, that model works in Vancouver. You got to be like the top, 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 top guy in your field in order for people to want to pay, fork out that kind of cash for private lessons. It's just not, not the way like, I remember when the UFC gym started opening here, you'd get these wealthy Asians who dropped like 10 grand on private lesson packages. They never went, they went once. Right. But if you're a small gym with no brand name behind it, they're not paying you right. that kind of money. So I think, you know, L.A. and New York are great places to run martial arts studio because there's enough population that you're going to get to be able to sustain that kind of model. That's well, crazy. I'm actually uh, experimenting right now because I just uh, bought a house down in Tampa, Florida. Mm. Oh, making the move. <laughs> uh, it may happen in the next couple of years, but I now have a location I can teach out of. And yeah. I just started doing some marketing down there. And you are entirely correct. Yeah. The, uh, the interest in paying for one-on-one -on -one training is nowhere near what it is up here. Yeah. But, you know, Fairfield County, Connecticut, which is where I train in Westchester County, New York, are two of the highest per capitas in the country. Yeah. So yeah. I benefit from that. But you go down to Tampa, you know, Tampa's got some wealth as well, but it's not up here. Yeah. And so the price tag is very different. So I'm actually experimenting with what, what will my price become because it can't be what it is up here. Yeah. And that's an interesting, like the, the martial arts and business is a mm -hmm. nightmare on its own. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Have you, have you always just done privates or did you try classes or, or was that, uh, so I did uh, group classes for, what was it, almost 10 years. I did groups and privates, and then I, I, I sold my group business to my black belt. Mm. And he took it over, and he's running that now, and that's more power to him. And uh, so he paid me you know, a fair sum for that, and the rest just became my, my lifestyle. It's just I'll, I'll, I'll jet down to the gym to do a private when I need to, and sometimes I'll go to their home, sometimes they come, you know, they come to me. And yeah. it's just, just a, I get to schedule my life a little bit more, I guess, in mm. some ways, but it's, it's a choice. I know yeah. some people don't like it, but um, it's just sort of become my process. Yeah. That's uh, it's particular in the Krav Maga world is that 
you know, I, I belong to a few organizations under a few things and they, you know, they teach you the curriculum, they teach you what to do. And then nobody has any sound universal business advice anywhere to be found. And I see in some of these forums, Kramaga forums, it's like, how do, how do I make this my living? And then there's just yeah. like either generic advice or no advice. And, yeah. and, and that's, and it's not specific to Krav Maga. It's like, no, it's, it's, not. The, it's the martial arts world. Like a lot of what will work in New York or LA, it does not work here. It no. just will not. I, you know, uh, for, I always so strange. Like when I, uh, when I have been to New York, like people use apps for like mm -hmm. restaurants. It's, it's totally normal, mm -hmm. uh, for people to be willing to use apps. And Vancouver is like a slow, slow to adapt to that i finally it took me forever to get students to use in my app for signing in but i would always get marketing pitches from these companies like look what we did to the school you know in new york look what we did to the school in this place and then it'll work for you trust us it's a proven model and i just got to the point where like no it won't and they're like you, you need to try it i'm like it's not gonna work it right. doesn't work here no school has ever had that work here it's all about community building and word of mouth yep. and google yep. that's yeah. it for me that, but if I go to that, another place, totally different, right? It's 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 true, and I've I've uh, you know I've bowed to the Google Google gods, and you know I'm paying them my money to kind of get yeah. search engine optimized and get yeah. my little pay per click ads out there, and you know it's it's getting me some love. But at the end of the day, you don't close them if yeah. the price tag doesn't meet what they're expecting, and it's what they expect for privates is kind of what they pay somebody to help them, you know, lift weights. Uh, and yeah. I'm not that trainer. And yeah. that's what they think about. So they think 60 bucks or 80 bucks an hour is, you know, totally fair. And that's not what I'm yeah. charging these days. Yeah. So it's a bit of a disconnect. So imagine living in Vancouver where 60 to 80 bucks an hour is a, probably at the higher end of, I charge a little bit more luckily because it's, there's not many people teaching what I do so I can, I can get away with it a little bit. You know, yeah. I'm 85 to a hundred dollars an hour, depending on how many sessions, yeah. but, yeah, but sure. yeah, to a lot of people that's like, I'm not paying that because I can pay a personal trainer like 30 bucks. I'm like, yeah, but you're not going to kick them in the groin during the session, guy. <laughs> like, exactly. You know, exactly. I actually, I gave up on privates for a long time. I, I, to be honest, I don't enjoy teaching them all the time, but I gave up on them here because people just didn't want to pay what I thought my time was worth. Uh, now it's picking up a bit with COVID coming down. I'm getting a lot of requests. And I actually found the if I approach it, hey, for the same price, I will teach your family or you and a friend. It's actually much better results, I find, sure. um, because sure. then they bring in the comfort level of their friend. Uh, I don't get beat up nonstop. I, can, I find it's actually easier to teach for me where I can actually look at what they're doing right and wrong versus if I'm trying not to get uh, spastic white belt to death. <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, I don't know how yeah. I, that's worked for you. Yeah. yeah, I did the same thing. I say, look, for the price of what it's, it's, you're basically paying for my hour. Yeah. So if you want to bring a couple people in with you, that's fine. If, if you get the round robin and work with each other, that's better for me anyway. So it's pretty much the same rep you just gave. Yeah, yeah. Whatever works in your region. So I think uh, we've covered a fair about, uh, amount of topics. Krav Maga, use of force, kind of policing a little bit. Uh, is there anything that you uh, thought you might want to talk about that we didn't? And want to get in? Um, no, I mean, I think I think we've covered the high points. Certainly, as far as you know, the the Krav Maga community and just sort of why we do what we do. I mean, I think it's <clears throat> at the end of the day, like we said earlier, uh, it's one of my one of my talking points always. Um, we are only going to be as effective doing what we do as 
students are comfortable talking and, and working on self-defense and yeah. you know, self-defense is still a very uh, scary topic to so many people. And, you know, I had a, there's a guy down in New York city who, who's killing it. Absolutely. Mm. Killing it. He's got wait lists and he's got college students coming in and he's just, he's printing money. Mm. And I walked in one day and uh, I've trained alongside of him as we compare techniques and he's a good guy. I said, so, so tell me, help me understand, because I'm still trying to understand how to get people into the door mm. talking about violence and getting comfortable with this topic of violence. He goes, well, I never talk about violence. Yeah. I said, well, <laughs> wait, wait, wait a second. How, how do you not talk about violence if we're teaching Krav Maga? He goes, yeah. I teach empowerment. I teach empowerment. Oh, no, 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 no. Come on. Yeah. There is not one without the other, right? <laughs> You're empowering them against something and it has to be violence. But, you know, whether he's giving me a line of you know crap or not, he's not he's killing it down there. So yeah. I'm I'm I am still interested to see how this world that we're living in, which is growing everly more violent, and there's just more unpleasant news on the on the TV and the newspapers. You know whether there's not going to be some greater swell of people wanting to do what we do because it's it's not pretty out there. Yeah, well, it's it's there's a couple of because now we now we got some stuff to talk about the the ethic ethics of teaching properly or teaching to survive right and that yeah you know uh not to shit on any specific kramaga or something near near was saying there's israeli kramaga and there's american kramaga and the joke kind of yeah. is the israelis are the ones that they focus so much on the aggression and the americans and quote american kramaga is often mocking it in the sense that it's a taibo class it's a kickboxing class it's the empowerment class and you know i vancouver is not not hollywood left but it's you know uh i consider myself center center right or whatever uh i have people who think i'm some right-wing nut job and i'm like uh i don't think you have perspective but okay um <laughs> right but i talk about stuff that makes and i have no shame i don't care because violence is violence and it's uncomfortable and i i do get students who come and are like i don't like what you're saying i don't like how you're talking about it this is making me feel uncomfortable and i'm usually like well maybe you should see a therapist first you're not ready for this um right. you know and people you know for me the violence violence is violence you can sugarcoat it with your theories all you want a punch in the face is a punch in the face someone wanting to kill you is just is exactly that and uh when you start bringing that reality like i i know i don't get the kind of business i would if i played that sellout kind of a game and and i don't have any i like it's like it's a struggle obviously i need to make a living but i my goal is to teach you to defend yourself and if i lie to you about what that means i i just don't i can't do it but a lot of people a lot of people do you know my my daughter was living in manhattan for a little while and uh she was taking a krav maga I told her I'd pay for Krav Maga classes yeah. in New York. I just want her to train. She trained yeah. with me, but then it's been a while. So I said, look, if you're living in Manhattan, I want you to train. Mm. So she finds a Krav Maga place and she's been, she goes there for weeks and weeks and weeks. She goes, dad, I need you to come in. I want to train alongside of you. Would you do that with me? I said, sure. Just under the one condition that no one there knows I'm an instructor because I don't need that noise. Yeah. And she goes, of course. So I walk in, you know, every inconspicuous doing my thing. So to their credit, they probably had 50 or 60 people in this class. It was mm. huge, huge. Mm. Now, the entire class, and I'm not exaggerating at all, it was a one-hour class of which 49 minutes was basically just Taibo, to, uh, to use your point. It was yeah. hitting, hitting a bag, hitting in the air, doing some sit-ups, doing some push-ups, doing some crunches, doing some this, doing some that. 
And so we all got this huge sweat going, right? We're all, you know, fried physically. And then the crop, and it's a Krav Maga black belt, right? He claims he's a black belt. Because all right, now it's time for us to do some self-defense. And we did choke from the side. Mm-hmm. And we did it for seven minutes. And that yeah. was the class. Yeah. And I thought, wow, they got nothing from that class from a self-defense standpoint. But if they're equating a good class as a good sweat, which is what they're trying to redefine the yeah. system as, yeah. then, then, they did, then they did a great job. But yeah. there's, there's a lot of that out there. Yeah, it's so unfortunate. Like, I, like there's so much on the internet. I get people. I always ask, like, what do you think, Krama guy? It's all I, when I remember to. Um, and you, some the best ones are like, I have no idea. I'm here to learn. It's like great. And then Good. the ones who have a really defined idea of what it is usually don't stick around because right. when because my I my some classes I do are like the Israelis where they're just killing each other, and I'm trying to stress their nervous systems and. Some beginner classes, I'm talking more because I want them to understand the concepts. And it just depends on who's the who's in the class, what the topic matter is of the day, you know. And people come in and they either the ones who expect it to be kickboxing or the ones who expect to be like murdering each other. And it's not that every single class they're like, uh, I don't right. want to do it. And I just don't think they actually they're not there to learn self defense. They're nope. there to learn the idea of self defense, which they have mistakenly thought it's one thing, but it's not. Which translate into into good business, obviously, you know. Mm-hmm. It's the yeah. same in like jujitsu. Like you haven't seen it too too much yet, but recently uh, you're starting to see accusations of belt factories in jujitsu because you can right. see the schools that produce good competitors are probably teaching more effective stuff than the schools yep. who have a thousand students. Like there are some schools that do both. Right, the uh, you know Atos, the Death, John Janaher, Henzo Gracie, mm-hmm. right? These sure. these are guys who know what they're doing. But you look at a lot of other schools, like uh, certain big organizations in both Krav and uh, uh, Jiu Jitsu. Now it's like you see what they're producing, and it's like they're not. That's not going to hold up under scrutiny, you know. And yeah, it's like, and it's, yeah. Well, again, if 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 our life's purpose, you know, as Krav Maga instructors, is to have the unfortunate moment of one of our students being attacked and having them succeed in getting away, then you have to reorganize how you're teaching, yeah. right? The priority is to make sure they walk away from a fight and get away, yeah. get away safe, or as safe as they can be. And that got lost somewhere. And there's a lot of, uh, a lot of exercise conditioning, get fit and learn some self-defense at the same time nonsense. And uh, yeah, I have, I have no patience for that. Yeah. Yeah, fortunately, that's what makes the money. That's that's one of the reasons that I like to. I want to do this podcast and talk to not just Krav Maga instructors, but just get our voices out there because I'm seeing just a lot of nonsense, misinterpretation, misunderstanding. People asking people because I know there's some high-profile people in the states that that understand violence very well, and they want to distance themselves from Krav Maga. They're like, listen, I don't want that name on my thing anymore because of what it's becoming in the states. It's just, I don't know what to tell those people. Um, mm-hmm. Sometimes it's because the techniques that you learn are being taught incorrectly, as in they're not thinking about overwhelming the other person's nervous system. They're just teaching the techniques. Sometimes it's because, you know, the, the Israelis have giant egos and they're like, it works, trust us, it works. And it's like, <laughs> no, you need to change the technique, guys. No, nobody does that anymore. Uh, and it's just very unfortunate that. Krav Maga is getting this name where you don't want to be attached yeah. to it. It's, it's getting that bullshito kind of attitude. And it's, I, I do not like it. 
So talking to people like you and, and getting the perspective of, of some of us who have a bit of a better idea of how to approach it better, uh, mm -hmm. just to try to clarify what that means to people, you know? Sure. It's unfortunate. Um, so if people want to, I think that's a good place to end. Krama guys about, uh, so you may learn to walk in peace, survive, get out. Yeah. And if you're yeah. not learning that, then it's not Kramaga. I think you muted yourself there accidentally. Um, so if people want to come train with you or get a hold of you, how can they do that? Um, my um, website is corporate Krav Maga, all one word, dot com. Yeah. And uh, number is 203-428-5800. That's a U.S. number. Yeah. Uh, any any social media? You know, I'm, I'm trying to build that <laughs> up. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not the best marketing guy in that department, but I'm doing yeah. the best I can. Yeah. Okay. So the website's the place to go. And hopefully it brings you in some uh, post-COVID windfall getting out there mm -hmm. uh Absolutely. so thanks for thanks for coming on and having a talk with me and i hope no, I, yeah for those who don't know he found the time today because he just had a shoulder surgery so i hope hope the recovery is smooth and uh you're back to training in no time i'm doing my best thanks buddy yeah absolutely have a great day you as well take care you're listening to the Warriors Day. The Warriors Day. Brought to you by Urban Tactics Krav Maga. Turning lambs into lions. <laughs>